Welcome to the CCF Podcast. We're a campus ministry at Truman State University. This podcast features sermons from our weekly worship services. Thanks for listening. We made it. We're here. Hello, everyone. Greetings to you all. It's me, it's Reed. One of the staff people here. Welcome Cammie and Kylie, our Global Scope friends. Rest in peace, Phil Fardum. We'll never see you again. Um, glad you all can be here. If you are new, Cammie, you're new. Kylie, you're new. If you're new here to this, to this semester, you're entering into a series on Isaiah and the Minor Prophets and also testimonies from our students. Tonight it's a Minor Prophet. It's not a testimony. Although, where's Jonsky? Where are you? Can I just tell you that that was one of the greatest things I've ever heard in my entire life last week? It really was. I'm not, I like am so sincere. It was, it was incredible. Thank you for that. I love testimony so much. I feel, I never feel prouder of like the ministry at CCF than I do when I'm listening to testimonies. What God does here is a beautiful thing and the way that, the very diverse ways in which you guys are able to communicate that are it's a very beautiful thing so thank you for that hey it's jonah you've heard of this book before i bet haven't you um this is jonah or a story about a fish or for me but not for thee or yes there is a time but not forever or a story not about a fish um just here's a little fun fact we're gonna do a little story time did you know there are two fish actually in the book you don't read hebrew so you probably don't know that but there are two fish because the first fish in chapter one that God sends is a, a male fish. And then the second fish in chapter two that actually spits Jonah out is a female fish. They have different words for these, and there are different words in the Hebrew. And Jewish teachers love to try to, they actually pay attention to this stuff, and they try to figure out like, hmm, what's going on? So they have these things called midrash. It's a story that they use to try to fill in the blanks that scripture leaves. And there's a midrash uh, about the story of Jonah that I just wanted to share with you. This is not the sermon, but it's really fun. So in the first, the first fish comes along and swallows Jonah. And God's like, why is he staying there for three days? Like, why is he, well, he's, he should be, he's, he's not saying anything. He's not complaining. And there, he's like, oh, I know. Because the fish that swallowed Jonah the first time, is actually really comfortable in there. He's like, dining and he's got a nice bed and he's really comfortable so this isn't working the way I had planned it to work so I got to think of something else and he's like I know I'll send a second fish and so he sends a second fish and he kind of just it comes along and gulp there's always a bigger fish and then inside that fish is just a bunch of dead stuff and that does the trick because then Jonah's like please save me get me out of here and God's like I knew that would work all the dead stuff what, why do you think there were two fish? I'd like to see you come up with a better story. Anyway, that's it. I just wanted to, sh- there's this, this great picture book, Jonah and the Two Great Fish by Mordecai Gerstein. And it's, it's an illustrated uh, midrash, a version of this midrash. And it's, it's pretty cool. Jonah uh, begins with a mystery. Did you know that? It does. It begins with a mystery. The problem is that we're so familiar with this story We've heard it a gajillion times that we don't recognize that there is a mystery to begin with. We know Jonah is told to go to Nineveh. This is not the mystery. 
the word of the Lord coming to a prophet and telling them to go somewhere to some people, this is like a motif in the Bible. It happens a lot. This is how the stories of a lot of our prophets begin. Uh, Moses, Samuel, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Zechariah, all of these prophets begin, uh, each of them, their lives are sort of broken into by God all of a sudden. And they're told, go and do this thing or go and say this thing. And each one does exactly that. They do exactly what they're told to do because this is what prophets do. So when Jonah's story begins, we're actually in very familiar prophetic territory. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Get up, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has risen against me. So far, so normal. But then, of course, we read in the very next sentence, And Jonah rose, still so far, so normal, to flee to Tarshish from before the Lord. And we've heard this story so many times that the actual ridiculous shock of this sentence just doesn't land because we think, well, yeah, of course Jonah runs away because that's what, that's what Jonah does. Like the same way that the sky is blue, Jonah runs away. We've heard this a million times. This is what Jonah does, except no, that's not, that's not what Jonah does or like it's what he does, but it's not what Jonah should do. A prophet who doesn't go and speak. It's like, you like baseball. It's like a baseball player that just doesn't swing his bat. He's just, you're like, you're not a baseball player if you're not doing that. He's like, does he, he walks, he doesn't even bring his bat when he goes up to the, to, to the plate. That's not a little bit of baseball. You're not even a baseball player. A book about a prophet that begins with the Lord telling him to go is only supposed to go one way. And if we're tuned into this, then as soon as we hear that word flee, our mouths should be dropping open and we'll be like, what? It would be like, you guys like the MCU, right? It would be like if in a Marvel movie, Captain America, you know they always have like the early fight scene where you get to show off some of the moves, but it's with a bunch of like anonymous goons and henchmen. It would be like if Captain America died during that scene. <laughs> You'd be like, what? It is, it's not even just unusual. It's really unfathomable for a prophet to just straight up say no, to just straight up say no to God, that really there should be this burning question in us that is, why? Why are you doing this? What is going on? And Jonah, he doesn't just slip out the back door here, okay? He turns and he sprints full tilt as far away as he possibly can. So if you had a map, like to be told to go to Nineveh and then to turn to go to Tarshish, it'd be like, pretend you're a farmer in Kansas. And God shows up and God's like, go to New York City. And then you get on your tractor and you drive to LA. That's what it is to go to Tarshish instead of Nineveh. Why? Why are you trying to not just get away, but like get as far away as you possibly can? When I was in high school, the thought of telling someone about God was honestly pretty terrifying. So this is how I thought about Jonah. I was like, oh yeah, like I feel you, Jonah. It is hard to talk about God. And so this must be a story that like relates to me because God, because 
it, it's it's scary, but you got to do it anyway, right? You got to obey. I was asking friends, like, what do you think about when you think about Jonah? And they're like, disobedience and fish. Which is probably what a lot of you think about it too, honestly, right? I mean, this is like what the story is. It turns out that to the extent that this might have terrified Jonah, like the prospect of doing this, this, actually, this terror is actually pretty warranted, um, not because talking about God in itself would have been scary to Jonah, but because the people of Nineveh would have been really scary to Jonah. Keevan talked about this on Sunday. Nineveh uh, was the capital city of, anybody know? Man, some Bible nerds here. Good job. It was the capital city of Assyria, which was one of Israel's great oppressors and enemies. And the thing is about Assyria is that Assyria is just really not a very good enemy to have. Because in history, the Assyrians are known for their brutality. Actually, this made it into our picture book. This is the depiction of Nineveh. And you're like, oh, cute, funny cartoon picture book. And then you look closely and you're like, what's going on? Like, look at the guy on the brick wall. He's like a black and blue corpse with a dagger stuck through him and he's upside down. And yeah, exactly. And I think somebody's throwing a baby off a wall maybe. And there's a, look at the dog. Do you see the dog is like doing a backflip through the air and it's got a sword stuck through it? Which is like kind of funny, but also it was like, it was a very horrific empire. So more soberly, here's a photo. This is a photo of a relief that was actually found in Nineveh which was uh, part of a series which recorded what Assyrians did to the Judeans in their conquest of Judah in the 8th century BC, which is a little bit before uh, the events of Nahum came around. This practice is called staking. When you take a corpse and you put it on a stake and you kind of put it along in a public place so that people know what you're about and they know not to mess with you. They also did something called flaying. I did not look up a picture. Imagine that you're Jonah, like real life Jonah, and you live in a civilization where this is happening to your family, to people that you know and care about. Like you've walked down the street of your city and on the side of the road, there is this. Like your cousins down the cul-de-sac up like this, the heads of your friends just piled in front of your door on your front lawn. This was a thing that happened in the world that people like Jonah would have had to live with and walk by. So maybe Jonah fled out of self-preservation, terrified of how the Ninevites are going to respond to him if he tries to come into their city talking about God. Like imagine asking a Jewish person in Europe in 1942, hey, go walk into Berlin and start talking about God to the Fuhrer. How do you think that's going to go? So would, would we be so quick to fault Jonah or whoever if, if they ran the other way, if these are the conditions that you're living in? You know what happens next? Jonah, and we're, we're through verse one, so we're doing good. Jonah jumps on a ship, and God comes after him with a storm, and the sailors throw him overboard, at his own request, by the way, perhaps because Jonah's trying to save the ship for their sakes, or perhaps because he would just rather be dead than do whatever it is that God's telling him to do. 
And then God sets up what becomes the most legendary big fish story in the history of the whole world. Jonah is swallowed up in how many days? Three days. He spends thinking things over and praying and maybe in a comfortable bedroom. And then out he comes in a bath of like salt water and fish bile out onto the land he goes. And then God calls him a second time to go to Nineveh. And now, maybe because he's convinced by the, the storm and the fish that really just any attempt to not do this is pretty futile, uh, Jonah makes his way to the city. Great city, three days across, uh, and he makes it like barely a third of the way. It says he traveled one day into this three-day-wide city before he delivers what some have called the worst sermon of all time. Forty days more and Nineveh is overthrown. See ya. In Hebrew, it's five words. In the English here, it's seven. For comparison, with due respect to differences in genre between this book and Amos, but Amos, who was also a prophet around the time of Jonah, his message to, his main sermon to, uh, to Israel was over 2,000 words. Jonah gives five. He makes no mention of God. He makes no mention of why. He gives no possibility of change. He gives no hope for restoration. After all of the running and all of the resistance, after finally giving in and going, it still looks very much like Jonah just will not try, will not do more than the absolute minimum. Like things are gonna go bad soon, that is all. So next time we're like, oh yeah, and then Jonah obeyed, like, did he? And much to absolutely everyone's surprise, here's the very next sentence. And the people of Nineveh trusted God, and they called a fast. You should be laughing. This is a funny story. Rather than laughing Jonah out of town or hanging him up on a stake next to his cousins, they believe him. Nineveh, decapitating, flaying, idol-worshiping Nineveh just goes nuts with mourning and fasting and repentance and sackcloth and the whole nine yards. They are dressing up their farm animals in fasting clothes and mourning clothes. That's not something that anybody ever did. <laughs> like to their cow, come here, Bessie. Mm, no, you need to say it sadder. And then the decree of the king comes to everyone, and I mean everyone, like he is speaking all the way down to the chickens. And he says, they shall call out to God with all their might, and every one of them shall turn back from his evil way and from the violence to which they hold fast. Now, for the king of Assyria to tell the people to turn from violence is a bit like Mark Zuckerberg telling people to turn from social media. He is denouncing the very thing that his empire is built on. You don't have violence, you don't have an empire. Violence is in his store windows, it's in the people's pockets. It is just the natural mode of operation for the Assyrian people. And he's like, let's not. And incredibly, the people and the animals, they respond, like they do the fast and they do the repentance. Here's how the picture book depicts it. Like this is literally the next page from the guy being stuck through the heart on the wall. You flip the page and it's like, ha. Ah. 
There's flowers. There's birds. There's butterflies. But the most, I think the most remarkable thing about this whole episode is uh, in, in, in what the king of Assyria says, and really he's actually yelling, like the, he, he's screaming at the top of his lungs for the people to do this. But what he says when he calls for repentance, he says, who knows? I love this question. Who knows? It's like the question of possibility. Who knows? Perhaps God will turn back and relent from his blazing wrath, and we shall not perish. What does this king know of God? What does he know of God? Presumably nothing. Certainly not from Jonah. Jonah wouldn't tell him a single thing about God. He didn't use the word. But it's as if this king, wicked as he is, somehow instinctively knows to hope that this God can be trusted to be merciful. That this God will not hold his anger forever. And that repentance can lead the people into rescue despite the fact, the very glaring fact, that the only message Jonah was willing to deliver was a message of doom. Bad things are gonna happen soon, that is all. And the guy's like, maybe God will be merciful to us. This is a theme in the book, actually. Earlier, when Jonah's on the boat, running at sea from God, and the storm is threatening all of their lives, it's not Jonah who believes in calling upon the Lord to rescue. It's the pagan sailors. They find him asleep, and they tell him to wake up, and they're the ones who say, call out to your God. Jonah's not the one who's like, I know, I'll call out to God. They're like, hey, why are you asleep? Call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give some thought to us that we might not perish. Jonah tells them nothing along these lines. They just kind of know this. And so there with the sailors, as here with the Ninevites, Jonah seems, <laughs> Jonah seems just to have no interest in God's salvation. Doesn't want to talk about it. He'd rather sleep. He does not cry out to God, by the way, when they're like, hey, cry out to your God. He doesn't do it when they ask him, and instead, this is what he says pretty laughably. He says, I am a Hebrew, and the Lord God of the heavens do I fear. No, you don't. No, you don't. You don't fear the Lord God of the heavens. You ran away. You don't fear him. And then he says, throw me overboard. The pagan sailors, so then they do, and then, and then it's the pagan sailors who are the ones left still. They're the ones who are crying out to God for salvation in the end. While Jonah's like, I'll just be down in the water. Throughout this book, things are just backwards, over and over. The characters who know nothing of God are the ones hoping that God will save them so that they may not perish. And the one character who claims to fear God would rather die than see rescue come about. The ones who ought to be under wrath believe in the mercy of God more than the prophet does. I'm sure this has no relevance for us today. And God, of course, responds to these wicked people's repentance. And God saw their acts, that they had turned back from their evil way. And God relented from the evil that he had said to do to them. And he did not do it. The end. Or, I bet that's what you would think was the end, if you've only ever read the children's Bible versions of this story, which frustrate me to no end, because literally they just cut off the fourth chapter, and you maybe have never heard it, even if you've done a Sunday school on it. Because the story doesn't end here. 
It doesn't end with the people uh, repenting and God relenting of the destruction that he was going to bring upon it. That's not where it ends. Which means that's not the point of the story. If it did end here, there'd be a nice little ribbon on it. Jonah, he was scared and he was disobedient. But you know what? He learned his lesson. and God saved the day. And so Jonah, he turned out all right in the end. And you can too, if you learn to obey. Go, tell your friends about Jesus. I don't care how scared you are. This is Sunday school, Jonah. The way we're used to hearing it, which just misses the point because it completely cuts off the final chapter of the book. Because here at the start of chapter four, we are only just now getting to the crux of the story. The question, are you going to obey God no matter what, is an important question, but it is not the central question of Jonah. The question, will you repent of your destructive ways and turn to God so that you may not perish, is an important question, but it is not the central question in the book of Jonah. Chapter 3 ends, so God relented from the evil that he said to do them, he did not do it, and he did not do it. And chapter 4 begins the next sentence, and the thing was very evil for Jonah, and he was incensed. He was mad. What thing was very evil to Jonah? What thing was evil to Jonah? That God did not do the evil that he had said he was going to do. God decided to relent. You know what? I won't destroy you. I'm going to be merciful. And this is evil to Jonah. It is precisely what he finds detestable. And it's like, is this even a prophet that we're talking about? Why are we calling this guy prophet? Like, isn't he supposed to be the one for the word of the Lord affecting a change? Not against it? I mean, <laughs> from a certain point of view, Jonah is the most successful prophet of all time. He gives the worst sermon of all time, and then everybody is just like, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, we repent, and sackcloth and ashes, and our cows, and now we're going to do the right thing, and we're all saved. I don't know that any of the other prophets had that kind of success. And Jonah is mad. The very change that God was longing to bring about was completely intolerable to Jonah. Why? Because it was for them. It was for them those guys. You know the ones. The bad ones, the ones who believe the wrong things, the ones who do the wrong things, the ones who are destroying our culture, the ones who offend me. It was for them. And he prayed to the Lord and said, I beseech you, Lord, was it not my word? Isn't this what I said when I was still in my land? Isn't this what I said? Therefore, did I flee, did I hasten to flee to Tarshish? And now we come to it. Finally, the big reveal at the end here to solve our mystery from the very beginning. This book, by the way, I think it's literary genius because they're holding it like this right until the right moment. Why did Jonah run away? Was he scared? No, he wasn't scared. Was he just a disobedient rebel? Not at all. Therefore did I hasten to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God. <laughs> Your grace and compassion made me run away. Why? Because it was for them. 
You know what they did to me? To my cousins? God, have you ever felt how sharp the tip of a stake is? I ran because I would rather die than see them forgiven. And that is exactly what I knew you would do because I know exactly who you are. Therefore, did I hasten to flee to Tarshish for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in kindness and relenting from evil. And I can't stand that. You're not supposed to relent from evil. You're supposed to give them what's coming to them. So now, Lord, take my life, pray for me. I would rather be dead than alive. It would be better for me if I were dead. Jonah didn't run because he was afraid of how the Ninevites would respond to him. It wasn't about self-preservation. He ran because he was afraid of how they would respond to God. He wanted them to be destroyed off the face of the earth. And he knew how God would respond to them. He wasn't afraid he would lose his life. He was afraid that they would find theirs. Jonah, like any good prophet, knew his Bible. And we know this because he's actually quoting his Bible right here. You are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in kindness and relenting from evil. In Exodus 34, there's a story. It's a really important story about Moses up on the mountain with God. Do you guys know this story? Where God tells Moses, I'm going to set you in a little cave right here and I'm going to cover you with my hand because you can't see me but I'm going to pass by. And when I pass by, I'm going to tell you my name. And this is the name that he says. The Lord, the Lord, a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in kindness and good faith. And what did Jonah call God in his anger? I knew you were like this. You're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in kindness. Here's Jonah. He takes the very name of the Lord proclaimed at Sinai, this sacred, precious name, this name that is a marker of the heart of God and a banner for Israel since the days that they were brought out of Egypt, and he hurdles it back in God's face as an insult Not that we would ever do that. And he makes one very small but very intentional amendment. He makes an edit. Do you see the difference? He leaves something out. What does he leave out? Good faith. This word means truth. It also translates to faithfulness. The idea is that God is true to his people no matter what. They can reliably depend upon him. He is for them. The word in Hebrew sounds like emet. Do you remember how our story started? First verse. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Remember? What do you remember what the next part is? Jonah, son of, did he already put it up on the screen? What is it? Amittai. 
Jonas of Amittai. Does that sound like any Hebrew word? Maybe one that you just heard. It is the same word. Jonah is literally the son of truth. This idea of God being true to his people and of his unswerving faithfulness to them, this is literally in Jonah's DNA. It's in his bones. It's in his name. He knows this. So when he evokes Exodus 34 and he leaves out Emmet, he knows exactly what he is saying to God. He looks at God and he says, I know Emmet. I know truth. I know faithfulness. And you aren't it. I know what it is to be true. I know what it is to be faithful. And you don't have it. You don't have it because if you did, you wouldn't do this for them. That's not truth. If you're going to be true to us, you've got to stick it to them. If you are for them, you cannot be for me. Unstoppable force, immovable object. This cannot happen. Are we like this with our enemies? We have them, you know. We have enemies. Most of us here, we're white. We definitely have not suffered as a community anything anywhere near what many suffer, including the Israelites under Assyria in these stories. But we have enemies. We have people who offend us, who do more than offend us, who wound us to different degrees, some extreme, some not as extreme. We have enemies. And if we don't, one day we will. People where it feels like if God can be for this person, then he can only be against me because I know what they did to me. Does our concept of God's faithfulness or does our insistence on God's truth make the reality of his mercy for our worst enemies intolerable? We so fixed on this idea of being right that we can't stand the idea that God might be merciful? I'm reminded of the parable of the workers in the vineyard. You know this one? They're coming at different hours of the day to show up for work and they're getting paid and the one who shows up at the very final hour gets paid the exact same as the guy who's been there all day and the people cannot stand this story. What's, off what's offensive about the gospel most of all isn't that it calls out our sin. And I'm a little tired of the whole like, yeah, the gospel's offensive because it's telling you how bad you are. Okay. I think honestly, what makes the gospel offensive is its proclamation of mercy for the ones that we hate the most. How many of us, in the dark honesty of our hearts, would deny the very grace for others that we so desperately depend on ourselves? Jonah prays exactly twice in this book. Once from the fish, and the other time when he's angry about God's mercy. In other words, he prays when he 
wants to be saved himself, and he prays when he wants to deny it to his enemies. Hear me. It's not that we can't be angry, like Kevin talked about on Sunday with Nahum. We need to be angry when someone is coming and putting us up on stakes. And if God isn't angry at that, God cannot be good. But the question is, how does God respond at the farthest horizon? How does God respond to Jonah here and to us when we are red in the face with rage and resentment and bitterness at the people who are our enemies? How does he respond when we are beyond angry at the people who are legitimately destroying our lives? Does he say, Jonah, my ways are higher than your ways? Does he say, get with the program, stupid? No. He says, do you do well to be angry? He is patient and merciful, even with rebellious Jonah. Do you do well to be angry? How's that working out for you? And Jonah screams back at him, yes, I do well to be angry. I'd rather die than see them loved by you. And God says a curious thing at the end of this story. I love the way this book ends. It ends with a question, very sudden, curtain drop, like this. Shall I not have pity? He's asking, almost asking Jonah like, for advice. What do you think, Jonah? Shall I not have pity for Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 human beings who do not know between their right hand and their left and many beasts <laughs> or, and also much cattle. They got a lot of cows, Jonah. Shouldn't I have pity? See, we always want to dehumanize the ones that we hate. We want to turn them into monsters. They're going to get what's coming to them, infidels or whatever. But God says, is it not full of 120,000 human beings? And beyond that, here's the thing that's really going to get you. They don't know their right hand from their left. Really? People putting my cousins on stakes don't know their right hand from their left? No, 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 no. They know. They're evil. They're wicked. They're under your wrath. God's like, they don't know, their, they don't know what they're doing. And we're like, yeah, no, they know exactly what they're doing. My ex, who was unfaithful to me, my dad, who left us, my coach, who humiliated me over and over and over again, you can't put someone on a stake and not know what you're doing. Remember what Jesus said when they crucified him? You remember? What? What do you say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They know what they're doing when they're crucifying him. And Jesus is like, no, they don't know what they're doing. They don't know their right hand from their left. The evil that we do and that is done to us does not have its beginning in some inherent evil nature. It has its beginning in ignorance, in confusion. They don't know what they're doing. I'm not saying that it shouldn't hurt. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be angry. I'm saying what God is saying. Do you do well to be angry? 
Should I not have pity? Can we do better? God gets angry. But his heart is an unquenchable mercy that sees each wicked human fully for who they are and ultimately insists, should I not have pity? They don't know what they're doing. Shouldn't I have pity, Jonah? Shouldn't I have pity? Or as it says elsewhere, his anger is for a moment, but his steadfast love endures forever. So yes, we need words like we find in Nahum that God is vengeful and will not withhold the punishment, but we also need what we find in Jonah. One is the appropriate response in the here and now. One is the compassionate wisdom that we settle into when we look at the farthest horizon of our lives and of others. The central question of Jonah, a question that touches all of us and that matters immensely is what in the end do you hope for your worst enemy? It literally ends with that question. (sighs) You guys, this is why we can't keep making this story about the fish. When we do that, we miss the central question. It's not about the fish. It's not about if you can be Bible enough to accept that this is a historical account of a fish swallowing a man or of showing that your faith is tough enough to believe that it actually happened. It's not about that. The scriptures are about transforming us. And I'm sorry, but no one is transformed by being argued into believing something about a huge fish. They're not. And maybe this is just me. And God forgive me, but I am not impressed by a God who can do that. Okay, cool. Neat party trick. He swallowed the man. The man stayed alive for three days. What impresses me infinitely more is a God who can look at a nation of people who are as brutally violent and wicked as you can be and say, shouldn't I have pity on them? That is the miracle, folks. They don't know their right hand from their left. Shouldn't I be merciful? But God, truth, shouldn't I be merciful? (sighs) This God who can make our hearts actually become like this, who can make our hearts become like his own when it comes to what we hope for our worst enemies. This is what this story wants to do, and it absolutely has the power to do it, but we are robbing it of that power when we are arguing about scientific proofs for, no, here, no, how, this is, hear me out, this is how really this can happen. It's not about the fish. It's not about the fish. The truth of this incredible story runs way deeper than the facts, way deeper. I believe that what you hope for the wicked, for your worst enemy, shapes who you become at the deepest level of your being. Because I believe that how God responds to his enemies defines who he is at the deepest level of his being, if I can dare speak of such a thing. Jonah and some of us would rather die than see our enemies redeemed. God on the cross shows that he would rather die than see them destroyed. This little story wants to help us move from the one heart to the other. Shouldn't I have pity? 
they don't know what they're doing. God waits patiently for the wicked to learn repentance, and he waits passionately, patiently for the righteous to learn compassion. Let's pray. Oh Lord, the depths of your mercy, that is the thing that is hard to comprehend. The depths of your mercy. Forgive us for our insistence that our enemies should pay the price. We know grace. We lean on it. Teach us to hope that our enemies will lean on it too. The question at the end, Lord, I think is a question to all of us. I think you turn from Jonah's face to each of ours as you ask it. Should I not also have pity? Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Amen.